Greetings in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. This Bible study covers the subject of unconditional salvation. In this study, we will look at the Word of God to establish the seven proofs that salvation is by unconditional grace. That is, that God bestows salvation by grace, free grace, and the sinner is not obligated to perform any conditions to earn that salvation. Salvation is unconditional by the grace of God. Before we begin our study, let us bow our heads together and approach this study prayerfully with reverence for the Word of God. Holy Father, which art in heaven, we come to thee in the matchless name of Jesus Christ, besides which name there is no salvation in heaven or in earth. We thank thee, O Lord, for the gift of thy only begotten Son, that we might be saved through his life and death. Heavenly Father, we thank thee for thy word that you have given to us that is able to make us wise unto salvation. You have said that we should search the scriptures, for they are they which testify of Jesus Christ. Grant us now thy Holy Spirit of illumination, that we might rightly divide thy word. Deliver us from the evil imaginations of our own heart, the ease with which we are decepted by the doctrines and traditions of men, and grant that we might see the truth of God as it relates to salvation. Forgive us our sins and grant that these few minutes spent studying thy word will be to our profit and not our condemnation for approaching them improperly. Our trust is in thee, O Lord, for it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. As I said before we prayed, this study deals with the seven proofs of unconditional salvation. I hope that you have the two-page outline that accompanies this tape in front of you. The outline will give you the means to prove each scripture reference and point made. Scripture commands us to prove all things and to hold fast that which is good in 1 Thessalonians 5.21. Hopefully the outline will give you the means to do that easily. Before we begin the seven proofs directly, let me make a few points of introduction. All the religions in the world and all doctrinal systems regarding salvation can be categorized into two camps or categories. Either salvation is conditional or it is unconditional. There can be no compromise between these two opposing and opposite categories. Either salvation is obtained by something the sinner does to earn his salvation, or salvation is given by the free, unmerited, undeserved mercy of God. There can be no mixing of these two categories. Salvation is either conditional or it is unconditional. Now, if we establish conditions for salvation, that is, the sinner is required to do something in order to be saved, then we have made salvation to be a system of works, not of grace. The Bible makes very clear that salvation is by grace. We read, for by grace are we saved, a couple of times in Ephesians chapter 2. And if we try to mix works with that salvation, then we run into a problem. Because God says plainly that salvation is either by works or it is by grace, and it cannot be by a combination of the two. Look with me, if you will, at Romans chapter 11. In Romans chapter 11, verse 6, we have an interesting statement made about mixing works and grace. Romans 11:6, speaking of the election of grace, mentioned in verse 5, verse 6 says, And if by grace, then is it no more of works? Otherwise, grace is no more grace. 
But if it be of works, then is it no more grace. Otherwise, work is no more work. This verse plainly says that by the definition of the words, grace and works can't be mixed. Because if something is given by grace, it means that no works were involved whatsoever. And if something's by works, then it is earned and there's no grace involved. You've either got to have salvation by grace or salvation by works. You can't have it by both. Salvation must be conditional or it's unconditional. It's given as wages for something you do or it's given freely regardless of what you do. In this study, I wish to show from Scripture seven proofs that salvation is definitely unconditional. Now, we're studying salvation from hell to eternal glory in heaven. I will freely admit that there are salvations to be obtained here in this world that are dependent upon you performing conditions. We can be saved from error. We can be saved from ignorance. We can be saved from false doctrine. We can be saved to fellowship with God if we will perform conditions here in this world. But what I am talking about are the aspects of salvation that include being regenerated or born again, that include being justified and sanctified legally, and finally to be glorified in the presence of God. These aspects of salvation, or salvation from hell to glory, are what I'm considering in this study. That is, if we are to ever land in heaven and be in the presence of God for eternity, and to be saved from eternity in hell, it is by the unconditional mercy of God that we shall receive such a blessing and benefit. If you wish to study the various phases of salvation, and there are five of them taught plainly in Scripture, please see the Bible study entitled The Phases of Salvation. With those remarks of introduction, let us now begin by looking at proof number one. Proof number one that salvation must be unconditional is that man by nature is unable to obey or please God for salvation. By man's very nature, he does not have the ability to do anything that would please God in order for God to give him salvation based upon that performance. And the reason is simple. In the day that Adam ate the fruit off the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, Adam died. God had promised him that he would die in that very day. You can see this in Genesis chapter 2 and verse 17. Not only did Adam die, but all of Adam's descendants died in him. When Adam brought forth Seth, according to Genesis chapter 5, Adam brought him forth in his own image and in his own likeness. That is, Seth was also born dead. Adam died the day he ate the fruit, and Seth was born dead. But now Adam did not die physically for 930 years. By reading Genesis chapter 5, we can find out that Adam lived to be 930 years old, but he died the very day he ate the fruit off the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The reason we have this apparent contradiction is because that many fail to see that Adam died spiritually in that day. When he sinned against God, he lost his ability Godward. He lost spiritual perception. He lost spiritual desire. He lost spiritual ability. And all the descendants of Adam have that same lack of ability, that same lack of desire. And it's called death in trespasses and sins. That's the way we're born by nature. Over in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 1, Ephesians 2 and verse 1, we have this statement. And you hath he quickened, who were dead in trespasses and sins, wherein, that is, in a state of death, 
In time past ye walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience. Before a person is born again, before a person is regenerated or quickened, all three of those phrases meaning the same thing, a person is dead. He's dead in trespasses and sins. That is, he walks according to the course of this world. He walks according to the prince of the power of the air. He obeys the spirit that works in the children of disobedience. That is the devil. That's our state by nature. We are dead in trespasses and sins. Now, no matter what God might require of a dead man, the dead man can't perform or do anything in order to earn life. We are dead spiritually. Therefore, we are unable. We cannot do anything in order to earn eternal life because we are dead. We're unable to perform any conditions. This is the first proof of unconditional salvation. Man by nature is unable to perform conditions for salvation because he is dead. This death is a death of desire and it is a death of ability. First of all, let's look at the fact that it is a death of desire. Look at Romans chapter 8 and verse 7. Romans chapter 8 and verse 7 tells us this about man's state by nature. Romans 8, 7. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. I want you to focus on the first clause in that verse. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God. By nature now, our minds are at enmity against God. We consider God our enemy. We will do anything to oppose God, to oppose his law, and to cast his cords and bands from us. We will not be in subjection to God nor his law. That's our state by nature. Come back a few chapters in Romans to Romans chapter 3 and take a look further at man's inability or lack of desire when it comes to the things of God. Romans chapter 3 and verse 11. There is none that understandeth. There is none that seeketh after God. Now notice that second clause. There is none that seeketh after God. By nature, we no longer seek after God. We have no desire to seek after God because we're at enmity with him. We have lost our desire to seek God or to do anything pleasing to God. We are his enemies, and we have chosen to make him our enemy. But not only have we lost our will toward God, we've lost any ability to perceive spiritual things or to please God. Look at Romans chapter 8 again, and let's read verse 7 again, as we just did a moment ago, and join with it verse 8. Romans chapter 8, verses 7 and 8. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. So then they that are in the flesh cannot please God. Now notice the force of these two verses. These two verses tell us that the carnal mind, that is what we have by nature, that is what we have by birth to our physical parents, it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. If God gives us a law, we can't be subject to it. We are unable to be subject to the law because we now have a sin nature obtained from Adam, wherein we're dead in trespasses and sins. We're dead to any spiritual good. We're alive only to sin and wickedness. Verse 8, So then, as a result of this carnal mind that's at enmity with God, they that are in the flesh cannot please God. What a powerful statement. Anyone in the flesh cannot please God. 
Now Jesus told us in John chapter 3, that which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. Being in the flesh, we can do nothing to please God in order to get into the spirit. God is going to have to do that unconditionally. What is proof number one? Man is unable to do anything to please God in order to perform conditions for salvation. And Romans chapter 8, verses 7 and 8 make that rather clear. Man cannot even hear God with any degree of understanding. Look at John chapter 8 and verse 47. In John 8, 47, Jesus said to the Pharisees, He that is of God heareth God's words. Ye therefore hear them not, because ye are not of God. The only ones that will hear God with any understanding are those who have already been saved of God, those who have already been born of God. By nature, a man will not hear with understanding the things of God. Come over to 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 14, and let's see this point established from another passage. 1 Corinthians 2.14 But the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him. Neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. The things that God has in store for us, that is, the things recorded in his word, the message regarding Jesus Christ and righteousness, those things are foolishness to the natural man. He can't know them because he doesn't have the spiritual capacity to understand and receive them. 1 Corinthians 2.14 teaches this point plainly. Man by nature, that is the natural man, is unable to do anything pleasing to God. He's unable to receive the things of God. He can't know them. He can't hear them. He can't be subject to them. And he can't do anything that would please God. Now, God knew this when he devised the plan of salvation. Look with me at Psalm 14, the 14th Psalm, and let's read the first three verses. The fool hath said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They have done abominable works. There is none that doeth good. The Lord looked down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there were any that did understand and seek God. They are all gone aside. They are all together become filthy. There is none that doeth good. No, not one. God did look down from heaven upon men to see if there were any that did good or that sought after him or that understood him. And what did he find? There is none that doeth good. There were none that did seek after him, and there were none that understood. They were all together filthy. That's what Psalm 14, verses 1 through 3, tells us about the state of man. No matter what we try to do to man, we cannot improve his ability or his desire to please God. Look with me at Isaiah chapter 26 and verse 10. Isaiah 26, 10. No matter what we do, we can't help man's desire. We can't improve man's ability to please God. Isaiah 26.10 reads, Let favor be showed to the wicked, yet will he not learn righteousness. In the land of uprightness will he deal unjustly, and will not behold the majesty of the Lord. If you take a wicked man, no matter what kind of favors you show that man, he will not learn righteousness. He will continue to do unjustly, and he will not want to behold the majesty of the Lord. He will continue in his wickedness, regardless of what favor you show him. Man by nature is unable to please God for salvation. He cannot do anything pleasing to God, and there's nothing we can do to improve his ability or desire to do so. Look at Luke chapter 16 
and verse 31 where Jesus Christ made this very clear in his parable regarding Lazarus. Luke chapter 16 and verse 31. The context for this verse is the rich man who is in hell asking Abraham to send someone to warn his five brethren not to come to the same place. And Abraham says to him in verse 29, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. But the rich man in hell says, Abraham, they need something more than Moses and the prophets. They need someone to go back from the dead and then they will repent. But listen to the answer of Abraham in verse 31. And he said unto him, that is Abraham to the rich man, if they hear not Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rose from the dead. Observe the force of that statement. It wouldn't matter if someone rose from the dead. A wicked man will not repent and turn from his wickedness, just as we read in Isaiah 26.10. Man by nature is at enmity with God. He hates God. He will not seek God. He does not fear God. He cannot understand God. He cannot hear God's words. He cannot receive the things of God. Man is dead in trespasses and sins, just as God promised would happen if Adam ate the fruit off the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And it's that death in trespasses and sins that we all enter this world as Ephesians 2.1 and Colossians 2 and verse 13 teach so plainly. Proof number one is that man by nature cannot and will not do anything pleasing to God in order to perform a condition for salvation. He cannot and will not perform any condition that God might give him. Proof number two is that God expressly denies man's will and works in obtaining salvation. God expressly denies man's will and works in obtaining salvation. The Bible is very clear that man's will and man's works are to be totally excluded from his salvation. Look with me at John chapter 1 and verse 13. John 1, 13. We're now establishing proof number 2. Speaking of being born again, Jesus, John writes in John 1, 13, which were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. When you are born to your two human parents, you're in the flesh. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. But we're told here in John 1.13 that you're born again not by the will of the flesh. That will you have by nature is not involved in your salvation. So any system of salvation that teaches you must make a decision of your will, and that's a popular expression, will you decide for Christ today? That particular doctrine is false. Scripture rules out any act of the will of your flesh. Look at Romans chapter 9 and verse 16 to further establish this point. Romans 9 and verse 16. So then it is not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but of God that showeth mercy. If you will receive God's mercy, it is going to have nothing to do with your will, nor your running. It is not an act of the will that obtains the mercy of God. As verse 15 points out, God will show mercy to whomever he wants to show mercy. It's dependent upon the will of God, not the will of the sinner. It is not of him that willeth. God expressly denies man's will in these two verses. Now man's works are denied even more plainly and more frequently in scripture. 
sense that it's a very common fallacy of false religion to try to establish salvation by works. Once you can establish salvation by works, then all the members of that particular denomination or religion are going to perform those works and usually that works in, for the benefit of that particular denomination. For instance, look at Roman Catholicism. They teach salvation by works in no uncertain terms. And that doctrine that their eternal salvation is dependent upon works is the source of their revenue because they must pay for masses to be said, they must pay for candles, they must buy rosaries and other relics from the church. It's a source of revenue once men are under the bondage of a system of salvation by works. But look at Romans chapter 4 and verse 6. Paul writes, Even as David also describeth the blessedness of the man, unto whom God imputeth righteousness without works. Here Paul says that righteousness is obtained without works. Ephesians 2 and verse 9 tells us that salvation is not by works, lest any man should boast. God has denied man's works in salvation, because if man's works were involved in salvation, then men would boast. In Titus chapter 3 and verse 5, Paul writes, Not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us. God's mercy is the source of our salvation, not our works of righteousness. And remember with me, remember, God's mercy is based on his will, Romans 9, 15. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. It's not the will of the sinner, and neither is the works of righteousness of the sinner. Look at 2 Timothy 1, 9 for a last proof on this particular point. 2 Timothy 1, 9. Speaking of our salvation in God, Paul writes to Timothy and says, Who hath saved us and called us with an holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began. God purposed who he was going to save, and he purposed that by grace before the world began in Christ Jesus. He did it according to his own purpose and grace. He did not do it according to our works. 2 Timothy 1.9 again rules out our works being involved in our salvation. Now because of proof number one, which states that man by nature is dead and unable to please God, we should know that God must save without man's will or works being involved. But that's plainly taught us in Romans chapter 5 and verse 6. Romans chapter 5, beginning at verse 6. For when we were yet without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. Now when a man is dead, wouldn't you say he's without strength? A man has no strength when he's dead. And here Paul tells us that Christ died for the ungodly when we were yet without strength. Look at verse 8. But God commendeth his love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Look at verse 10. For if, when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, God reconciled us to himself through Christ's death when we were enemies, when we were sinners, when we were without strength. We were not willing and we were not working for that reconciliation or that salvation. Look at Ephesians chapter 2 with me. Ephesians chapter 2. We are establishing proof number two 
that the scriptures plainly deny man's will and works to be involved in salvation. Now we read in verses 1 through 3 of Ephesians chapter 2 that we were dead in trespasses and sins and that by nature we were the children of wrath even as others. But now look at verse 4. But God, who is rich in mercy for his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ. By grace ye are saved. God quickened us into spiritual life. God saved us while and when we were dead in sins. Now a dead man is not making any acts of his will, nor is he making any activity of his body. He's dead. He's without action, either mentally or physically. And that is when we were saved. That's what the Word of God teaches about salvation. If we were to work for our salvation, then salvation would be by debt. But you know that salvation is by grace according to the testimony of Scripture. For we just read it there in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 5 that we were saved by grace. Look at Romans chapter 4 and verse 4. Romans 4, 4. Now to him that worketh is the reward not reckoned of grace but of debt. If we work for our salvation, then salvation isn't by grace. Salvation isn't a gift. Salvation is the payment of a debt, according to Romans 4.4. 4. But we know that salvation is the gift of God. For we read in Romans 6.23, The wages of sin is death. Now, death is something we earn. We earn that by eating the fruit off the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and by sinning in our own lives. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. God gives us eternal life as a gift. It is not given to us by obligation, so works cannot be involved in salvation. Now an error that's frequently made when it comes to salvation is that faith, or believing in Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, is not a work. So that some will deny that salvation is by works, but they will then turn around and teach that sinners must repent, must believe on Jesus Christ, must accept him into their heart, and believe on him as their personal savior in order to be saved. They teach that salvation is not by works, but yet the sinner must believe and have faith and repent in order to be saved. Let me show you that faith is most definitely a work. Look at John chapter 6, verses 28 and 29. John chapter 6, verses 28 and 29. The Jews here are speaking with Jesus. Then said they unto him, What shall we do that we might work the works of God? Jesus answered and said unto them, This is the work of God, that ye believe on him whom he hath sent. In these two verses, Jesus asks a very simple question, answers a very simple question with a simple answer. He tells these Jews, that the work of God, if they want to please God by works, is to believe on God's Son, Jesus Christ. Believing on Jesus Christ is a work, according to this plain verse. Not only is it a work, it's also an important matter of the law. Look at Matthew chapter 23 and verse 23. Matthew 23, 23. This is a condemnation of the Pharisees by Jesus Christ. Jesus said in this passage, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For ye pay tithe of mint and anise and cumin, and have omitted the weightier matters of the law, judgment, mercy, and faith. These ought ye to have done, 
and not to leave the other undone. Notice the important statement in this verse that faith is a weightier matter of the law. Therefore, if you teach sinners must have faith in order to be saved, that faith is the condition for salvation, then you're teaching salvation by the law. So many people do that today. They deny that salvation is by works, yet they teach that the sinner must have faith in order to be saved. And they're right back teaching the same system, salvation by works, because faith is a work. We established from John 6 that it was a work. We've just shown from Matthew 23 that it's a weightier matter of the law. Let me show you in 1 John chapter 3 and verse 23 that it is a commandment. 1 John chapter 3 and verse 23. And this is his commandment, that we should believe on the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another as he gave us commandment. This verse tells us plainly that believing on Jesus Christ is a commandment. We are obligated to do it. It is a commandment just like the fact that we ought to love one another, which is the first and second commandments of the law. The first commandment is that we should love the Lord our God. The second commandment of the law is that we should love our neighbor as ourselves. Believing on Jesus Christ is a commandment. And no man is saved by commandment keeping or by the law or by works because the Bible plainly rules out such methods of salvation. Titus 3.5, remember, told us, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us. Salvation is by the mercy of God, not by our works of righteousness. Look with me for a minute, if you will, at Galatians chapter 2. Galatians chapter 2. I want to read verse 21. Paul said of himself, I do not frustrate the grace of God. For if righteousness come by the law, then Christ is dead in vain. Paul here is teaching the Galatians that you have frustrated the grace of God by believing that righteousness comes by the law. Paul himself is saying, I don't do that. I don't frustrate God's grace because I don't believe that righteousness comes by the law. I believe that righteousness comes by Christ's death. But the minute you begin teaching faith as the condition for salvation, you are teaching righteousness by the law because faith is a weightier matter of that law. Remember that our faith requires works in conjunction with it in order for it to be valuable faith. James chapter 2 tells us that the devils themselves believe and tremble. And James chapter 2 and verse 20 tells us that faith without works is dead. So if you teach that faith is necessary for salvation, faith without works is dead, you've got to add all the other good works in with faith anyway if you're to have living faith or if you're to have faith that is any better than the faith of devils. So we're right back to the same place. Salvation is not by works, and faith being a work and described as a work in Scripture cannot be the condition for salvation because as proof to states, God expressly denies any activity on the part of man's will, which is faith, and any activity in the part of man's body in good works as the conditions for obtaining salvation. God plainly denies man's will and works have anything to do with obtaining salvation. My friends, the only will that is active in salvation is the will of God. We've already seen that in Romans 9.15, where we read, I will, there's God's will, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. Look at Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 5. 
Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 5. We're speaking of our election in Jesus Christ before the foundation of the world. We read that God, having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. Notice that it does not say according to the good pleasure of the sinner's will, but according to the good pleasure of his, that is God's will. It is God's will that is active in our salvation and not our own will. God has always done whatsoever he pleases. In Proverbs chapter 16 and verse 4, we read, The Lord hath made all things for himself, yea, even the wicked for the day of evil. God works all things according to the counsel of his own will in Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 11. My friends, the only will that is involved in salvation is the will of God. And the only work that's involved in salvation is the work of Jesus Christ when he died on the cross. Look with me at one final passage for this proof in Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10, and I would like to begin reading in this chapter with verse 9. Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 9. Then said he, this is speaking of Jesus Christ. Then said he, lo, I come to do thy will, O God. He taketh away the first, that he may establish the second. By the which will we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Notice that Hebrews 10.10 tells us which will we are sanctified by. It is the will of God that Jesus Christ obeyed when he offered his body on the cross once for all. I hope that each listener can see that plainly. It is the will of God that is the basis for our salvation, and it is the work of Christ in obedience to that will that is the work in our salvation. God plainly denies man's will and man's work in our eternal salvation. It is God's will and it is Christ's work that is the basis for our salvation. So we have two proofs established so far from the word of God that salvation must be unconditional. Proof number one, man cannot by nature do anything pleasing to God. He is unable to perform any conditions for salvation. And proof number two, God plainly denies man's will and man's works when it comes to obtaining salvation. It is God's will and Christ's work that is the basis for our salvation. Let us go now to proof number three. Faith and works are the results of salvation, not the conditions. When you show me a man that has faith and you show me a man that brings forth good works, I'll show you a man that was already saved because faith and works are the result of salvation, not conditions for it. Remember that a man in the flesh, that is a man who is not saved, cannot please God. We read that in Romans chapter 8 and verse 8. Now look with me at Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2 and verse 13. For it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. When you show me someone who's willing and who's doing the good pleasure of God, I'll show you someone that God had to work that will and work that doing into them by changing their heart and changing their ability. That is Philippians 2.13. Remember, Romans 8.8 8 tells us, so then they that are in the flesh cannot please God. But here we see some pleasing God, both willing and doing his good pleasure. But it is because God worked that ability and desire in them beforehand.
And that is what God does in the work of regeneration when he gives us a new heart and a new spirit. In Romans chapter 3 and verse 18, we read about sinners by nature that none of them have any fear of God. There is no fear of God before their eyes, Romans 3.18. But look at Jeremiah chapter 32. Jeremiah chapter 32, and I'd like to read verses 39 and 40. Jeremiah 32, 39 and 40. God says of his people, And I will give them one heart and one way, that they may fear me forever, for the good of them and of their children after them. And I will make an everlasting covenant with them, that I will not turn away from them to do them good, but I will put my fear in their hearts that they shall not depart from me. Whenever we see a man who fears God and wants to obey God, we can know that God already put that fear in his heart by giving him a new heart. And a new heart is the result of being born again or being regenerated when we have a new nature given to us in that act of regeneration. When you show me a person that can see the things of God or can hear the words of God or that knows God, I'll show you a man that has already been saved. John 3, 3 tells us, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. If you show me a man that can see God's kingdom, I'll show you a man that's already been born again because unless he was born again, he could not see that kingdom. John 8, 47 told us, he that is of God heareth God's words. It is only a man who has already been born of God and is already in God's family that hears God's words with any degree of understanding. Look at Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 10 with me. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 10. This is an important verse. In the first nine verses, Paul has been describing our salvation from death and trespasses and sins. And he says in verse 10, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. Notice that God creates us in Christ Jesus unto good works. He doesn't create us because of our good works. He doesn't create us because we perform the condition of good works. He creates us that we might go and do good works. The good works result from salvation. The good works are not the condition for salvation. Hopefully you can see that plainly. Faith itself is given in salvation. Do we not read in Galatians chapter 5? But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith. Faith is an aspect of the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5 and verse 22. The only men that have faith are the men that have the Spirit of God, and they receive the Spirit of God unconditionally. They don't get the Spirit by faith because faith is a fruit of the Spirit. You've got to have the Spirit before you can bring forth the Spirit's fruit. Oh, how much of our religion today and how much of Christianity has got the cart before the horse? They've got faith before the Spirit when it is the Spirit that bears the fruit of faith in a child of God's life. Notice 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 1. Many verses could be read on this particular point, but I trust that you can see them in your outline. 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 1. Simon Peter, a servant and an apostle of Jesus Christ, to them that have obtained like precious faith with us through the righteousness of God and our Savior Jesus Christ. If you show me a man that has faith, 
I will show you a man who was righteous before that, and he obtained that faith from God. Notice that the, this particular proof that we're working on is that faith and works are the results of salvation, not the conditions for it. A man that has faith has faith as a result of being made righteous through Jesus Christ, according to Second Peter chapter 1 and verse 1. Faith is a result or evidence of eternal life and salvation. It is not a condition for it. If a man works or if a man believes, that shows he already is saved. That isn't the means for him to get saved. Look at Acts chapter 10. In Acts chapter 10, we have the personal testimony of the man Cornelius. It's the most, most lengthy testimony of any man's salvation given in the word of God. In the first five verses of Acts chapter 10, we read that Cornelius was a Roman, a centurion of the Roman army, of the, of the band called the Italian band. In verse 2, we read that he was a devout man, one that feared God with all his house. He gave much alms to the people and prayed to God always. Now, isn't that interesting? We've already read that men are at enmity with God, that they don't seek after God, that they don't understand. And here's a man who's called a devout man. He fears God, which Romans 3.18 tells us that no natural man does. He prays to God, that is, seeking God, which Romans chapter 3 and verse 11 tells us that no natural man does. So what did Peter say to Cornelius when he met him? Well, if you'll come over to verses 34 and 35, we can see Peter's statement to Cornelius. Acts 10, verses 34 and 35. Then Peter opened his mouth and said, Of a truth I perceive that God is no respecter of persons, but in every nation he that feareth him and worketh righteousness is accepted with him. What a powerful statement. Peter says that I perceive, or whenever you perceive or see a man that fears God, and works righteousness. Now there's faith and fear and, and good works. When you see those things, that is showing a man already accepted with him. You don't do those things in order to be accepted. You do them because you are accepted and the new nature God has given you is bringing forth faith, fear, and righteousness. Come over to 1 John. 1 John has many statements that help support and prove this particular point. 1 John chapter 2 and verse 29 will be our first reference. 1 John 2, 29. If ye know that he is righteous, ye know that everyone that doeth righteousness is born of him. Notice that this verse teaches us that if someone does righteousness, that is evidence that they're born of him. You don't do righteousness in order to be born again, but he that doeth righteousness is born of him. He is already born again, and the works of righteousness are evidence of that fact. Look at chapter 3 and verse 7. Little children, let no man deceive you. He that doeth righteousness is righteous, even as he is righteous. You don't have to do works of righteousness in order to be made righteous. You do works of righteousness to show that you're already righteous. Look at verse 14. We know that we have passed from death into life because we love the brethren. If you love the brother, if you love the brethren, it doesn't cause you to be passed from death into life. It simply lets you know that you have been passed from death unto life. Look at 1 John 5 and verse 1. Whosoever believeth there is faith that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. You show me a person that believes, I'll show you a person that's already been born of God. 
His belief in Jesus Christ is evidence. It's a result of the fact that he was born of God. Look at verse 4. For whatsoever is born of God overcometh the world. And this is the victory that overcometh the world, even our faith. The world wants to teach today that you have to have faith in Jesus Christ in order to be born of God. But this verse teaches us that faith is born of God. You've got to be born of God before you'll have faith. 1 John chapter 5 and verse 4. We have now completed three proofs of unconditional salvation. Proof number one was that man by nature is unable to obey or please God for salvation. He simply doesn't have the ability to perform conditions for salvation. Proof number two is that God in the scriptures plainly denies that man's will or man's works have anything to do with salvation. Proof number three is that any faith or works on the part of man are the results of salvation. They're evidences of salvation, not conditions for it. So by three proofs, we've established that salvation must be unconditional. It can't be based on anything the sinner does or performs. Now let's go to proof number four. This is one of my favorites. Proof number four is that Jesus Christ saves sinners by himself without human cooperation. What I want to emphasize is that Jesus Christ saves by himself. He's done it all by himself so that he will get all the glory for it. Look at Romans chapter 5 with me for a most important statement for this proof. Romans chapter 5. In Romans chapter 5, the Apostle Paul sets forth before us the doctrine of representation. That is that sometimes God deals legally with men where the actions of one man will be put to the account of many other men. One versus many. And both Adam and Jesus Christ are set forth as two representatives. Adam stood in our stead in the Garden of Eden. When God told Adam not to eat the fruit off the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and Adam disobeyed, that disobedience was applied to our accounts legally. Look at Romans chapter 5 and verse 19. For as by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners. Paul's subject of representation is covered in verses 12 through 19 of this chapter. But I want you to focus on these words. For as by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners. How did you become a sinner? It wasn't when you stole cookies out of the cookie jar when you were three years old. It wasn't when you lied to your father when you were four years old. It wasn't when you stole your neighbor's bicycle when you were eight years old. These activities did not make you a sinner. They showed that you were a sinner. What made you a sinner was the fact that Adam sinned in your place in the Garden of Eden. Romans 5.19 tells us this. For as by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners. That's the doctrine of representation. One represented many. Adam represented the human race. By his one act of disobedience, he made all of us sinners, so that we're all in a state of condemnation before God. Look at verse 18 to see that point. Therefore, as by the offense of one, judgment came upon all men to condemnation. Notice it was Adam's one offense that brought judgment and condemnation upon all men. But now look at the second half of verse 19. So by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. If you're ever made righteous, it will be because one man was obedient for you, and that man was Jesus Christ. We're dealing with Adam 
and Jesus Christ. You can see that in verse 14 where we read of Adam that he is the figure of him that was to come. That's the first and second Adam. Adam, who was the husband of Eve, the first man that God created, and Jesus Christ, who is the second Adam. Adam's single act of disobedience made men sinners. Jesus Christ's single act of obedience made his elect righteous. Everyone that Jesus Christ was obedient for shall be made righteous by his obedience and his obedience alone. You didn't have to disobey to be made a sinner. Adam disobeyed for you. You don't have to obey to be made righteous. Jesus Christ obeyed for you. This is the fourth proof of unconditional salvation. You don't even have to believe there was an Adam in order to be made a sinner by Adam, and neither do you have to believe in Jesus Christ or show faith in order to be made righteous by his obedience. That is a powerful statement in Romans 5.19, and I trust that each listener will read and study it carefully. Look with me, if you will, at 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 2. 1 Peter 1, 2. I hope that with this verse, you'll see the importance of the doctrine of election. In 1 Peter 1, 2, Peter says, Elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through sanctification of the Spirit, unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. God elects man to the obedience of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ didn't obey for all men. He only obeyed for those that God elected to that obedience. Adam's disobedience applied to all men because everyone that was related to Adam by natural generation, by human birth, is associated with his sin. Everyone related to Jesus Christ by the new birth or by being born again are related to his act of obedience. And you're born again by God's election. God elects men to the sanctification which is regeneration or being born again of the quickening work of the Holy Spirit. God elects men to that and the obedience of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ obeyed for his elect and it is by the obedience of one as we read in Romans 5.19. Not the obedience of two, not the obedience of three. So much of religion teaches that ministers must carry the message of salvation to sinners and then the sinners must obey that message as it's delivered. That's the obedience of three. Jesus Christ was obedient to make the, the gospel true. The minister was obedient in obeying the call of God to preach the gospel. And the sinner was obedient in believing that message that the obedient minister preached. That's the obedience of three. And salvation, righteousness, is not that way. It is by the obedience of one, Jesus Christ. What a powerful statement that gives all the glory to Jesus Christ. Look at Hebrews, excuse me, Hebrews chapter 9, Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 15. Let us see how the everlasting covenant, or the new covenant, which is the basis for our salvation, was put into effect. Hebrews chapter 9, and let's begin at verse 14. How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, Purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. And for this cause, he is the mediator of the New Testament, that by means of death, for the redemption of the transgressions that were under the First Testament, they which are called might receive the promise of eternal inheritance. How do you receive the, the promise of eternal inheritance? By the means of death. Whose death? The death of Jesus Christ, his blood. 
Verse 16, For where a testament is, there must also of necessity be the death of the testator. For a testament is a force after men are dead. Otherwise, it is of no strength at all while the testator liveth. The word testament here is describing a will. God made a will. I am going to have some children, and I want to give to them eternal life. That was the will of God. Now that will, or that testament, would not go into effect until God died. And God died by means of the death of Jesus Christ, the God-man. When Jesus Christ died, the New Testament went into force, thus giving all the beneficiaries of that will the promise of eternal inheritance. Surely you can see that. The means by which we receive the promise of eternal inheritance is by means of death. When the individual who wrote the will, that is the promise of eternal life, died, that is, Jesus Christ. Praise be to God for the death of Jesus Christ, which is the means of us obtaining our eternal inheritance. Look at Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 3. Hebrews 1, 3, speaking of Jesus Christ, who being the brightness of his glory, and the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. Jesus Christ purged our sins away by himself. We did not cooperate with him in getting rid of our sins. Look at Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 10. By the which will we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Verse 12. But this man, a single man, Jesus Christ, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God. Look at verse 14. For by one offering he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. It was one man and one offering, one sacrifice that has forever perfected God's sanctified elect. Notice it is by the obedience of one that we are saved. It is not by us performing conditions of obedience at all. It is purely by the work of Jesus Christ. Did not Jesus Christ say these three words as he hung on the cross? It is finished. What did he mean by those three words? Unless by these scriptures that we've already looked at, he meant that the work of salvation was complete the new covenant was now in force because the testator, the mediator, had now died and put that covenant into force. He by himself had offered that one offering that put away our sins. By his single act of obedience, we now are saved and are made righteous. By the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. If we try to add anything to that work of Jesus Christ, we make his death of no effect. Look at Galatians chapter 5 and verse 4. And oh, the world and the devil and men's hearts want to add to the work of Christ. Paul had to deal with that problem in the churches of Galatia. Look at Galatians 5, 4. Paul said, Christ is become of no effect unto you. Whosoever of you are justified by the law, ye are fallen from grace. If we try to add works of the law to Christ's work on the cross, such works like faith, then Christ's work has become of no effect. Jesus Christ made us righteous, he saved us, he perfected us, he has earned for us the promise of eternal inheritance by means of his obedient death on the cross. Jesus Christ saved sinners by himself without our cooperation at all. That is proof number four. Let us now look at proof number five. 
This proof is that when God gave us the ordinances of the gospel, that is the commandments for good works, he didn't give them to bring us eternal life. He gave them for other purposes. Proof number five is that the ordinances of the gospel were not intended to bring life. Now, the greatest and largest church on earth that teaches that the ordinances were to bring life is the Roman Catholic Church. They teach a system of sacramentalism. That is, there are seven sacraments or good works or ordinances that you have to keep in order to go to heaven. These sacraments are baptism, confirmation, penance, extreme unction, holy orders, matrimony, and so forth. The seven sacraments of Rome. And many churches have followed Rome in adopting some of those sacraments. But God has not purposed the sacraments to bring us eternal life. First of all, we should realize that God gave the ordinances to churches. In 1 Corinthians 11, verses 1 and 2, Paul told the church at Corinth to keep the ordinances as he had delivered them to that church. But remember, a church is already made up of saints. It's already made up of those who are saved. The ordinances don't give them eternal life. They already have eternal life. The ordinances are simply rules of behavior for them in the church so that they might please God in their worship. Let's look at a couple of ordinances simply for the sake of illustration. Look at baptism. In 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 21, 1 Peter 3, 21, the like figure, and notice that word figure, the like figure whereunto even baptism doth also now save us, not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Baptism is a figure of salvation. It's not actual salvation. It just simply shows a figure of salvation by representing the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Notice that little phrase, those two phrases inside the parentheses. They tell us that baptism does not put away the filth of the flesh. Baptism is not a condition for salvation. Like the Church of Rome, like the Episcopal Church, like the Lutheran Church, like the Methodist Church, and like many Presbyterian churches would have us believe. Baptism is not a condition for salvation, and surely like the Church of Christ teaches. Baptism does not put away the filth of the flesh. It is simply a figure of our salvation, because when a person is buried beneath the water and rises again, he shows a figure of Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. And by doing that act, he gives the answer of a good conscience. But notice he already has the good conscience. Baptism does not give him a good conscience. Baptism is the answer of that good conscience that God gave him through regeneration. I trust that you can see that plainly. So many martyrs have given their lives as Rome burned them at the stake, fed them to lions, and had them drowned in rivers and pulled apart upon racks because they would not submit to the doctrine of the Roman Catholic Church that baptism is a condition for eternal life. In Romans chapter 6, we're taught that baptism is the likeness of the burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ. You can read that passage on your own. Romans chapter 6, verses 3 through 5. What about the Lord's Supper? The Roman Catholics call the Lord's Supper the Mass. They believe that through the Mass, you obtain the grace of Christ's death. It's one of the seven sacraments of the Roman Church. But look at 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 26. For as often as ye eat this bread and drink this cup, 
ye do show the Lord's death till he come. Again, the Lord's Supper is just a figure of the Lord's death. We show it by drinking the cup and remembering Christ's blood and eating the bread and remembering Christ's body. We simply show the death of Jesus Christ. We do not obtain any benefits from it by participating in the Lord's Supper. The ordinances of the gospel are simply to give us pictures of Christ's salvation for us, of Christ's death, of his burial and resurrection. They are not the means by which we obtain eternal life. There was one other ordinance that many churches today are teaching is the means of eternal life, and that is the preaching of the gospel. So many today believe that the gospel itself is the means of eternal life, that by preaching the gospel we can take a sinner, preach him a message of news and information about Christ, and if he'll receive that information, he'll then be given eternal life and be saved. But now we've already established from four other proofs that that couldn't possibly be true. Man is unable to believe the gospel when he is unsaved. God plainly denies man's will to be involved in salvation. If any man has faith, it's a result of salvation, not a condition for it. And Jesus Christ saved by his own obedience, not by our obedience to the gospel. But let's look very briefly at the purpose for the gospel. Look at 2 Timothy chapter 1. 2 Timothy chapter 1, and I'd like to read verse 10. We've already read verse 9, which describes our salvation as being based in God's eternal purpose and grace, which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began. But now let's read verse 10. This purpose and salvation is now made manifest by the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ. When something is made manifest, that means it's made very plain or evident to our vision, to our sight. Who hath abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Please notice those two words, to light. The gospel brings life and immortality to light. The gospel has never brought life and immortality. Jesus Christ brought life and immortality, and it is the gospel that makes that life and immortality manifest. It tells us about that life and immortality. It's brought to life through the gospel. It is not brought by the gospel. But oh, how many have corrupted God's ordinance of preaching the gospel. They think that by preaching, we can save those who are perishing. My friends, you can preach for the rest of your life to someone who is not saved, and there is no way that the gospel can do them any good. Look with me at 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 18. 1 Corinthians 1:18. For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish the means of salvation. Is that what your Bible says? No, it isn't. And you know better. 1 Corinthians 1.18 says, For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness. You could preach for the rest of your life to someone who's perishing. He'll never receive the gospel. He'll never believe it. Because like we established in proof number one, he is unable. He is unwilling. He doesn't want the gospel of Jesus Christ. He hates anything associated with God and his salvation. The gospel cannot help a man dead in trespasses and sins. If you were to bring instructions to a man dead in a hospital bed on what he must do in order to receive his life once again, that would be a joke. What can a dead man do? What, what can a dead man perform in order to improve his health? He's dead. It's too late for any activity on his part. And so it is with man.
Because of our sin in Adam, because of our death and trespasses and sins, the gospel has no effect on one that is so dead. The gospel only has an effect on those who have already been called into eternal life. Look at verse 24 of 1 Corinthians 1. But unto them which are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. When you preach the gospel to someone who's been called into eternal life, to someone who's already been saved, then to them it's the power of God. Verse 18 in the second half teaches us that same point. For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, but unto us which are saved it is the power of God. When a person has been saved unconditionally by the grace of God and he hears the gospel, he sees in that gospel and he understands from the preaching of that gospel that it was God's power that saved him. But when you preach that same message to a man that's perishing, he just thinks it's a bunch of foolishness. Because as we read in 1 Corinthians 2.14, the natural man has no mind for the things of the Spirit of God. In order for you to believe the gospel, God has to perform a mighty operation of quickening you into spiritual life, as you can read in Ephesians chapter 2. The power for salvation resides in Jesus Christ. Was it not Jesus who said in Matthew 28 and verse 18, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. And in John chapter 17 and verse 2, Jesus Christ said in his prayer to his heavenly Father, As thou hast given him, that is himself, Jesus Christ, power over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as thou hast given him. Jesus Christ has the power to give eternal life. The gospel does not have it. The word gospel simply means good news. The gospel is the good news of how Jesus Christ earned our salvation unconditionally for us. Look at Romans chapter 1, verses 15 and 16. Verse 15, verse 16 is the one that is used most generally. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. But now to whom is the gospel the power of God? Why, of course, only to those who are already saved. We saw that in 1 Corinthians 1.18. Someone who's perishing just thinks it's foolishness. But to someone who is saved, he sees in the preaching of the gospel the power of God. That is why in verse 15, Paul wanted to preach the gospel to the church at Rome. So, as much as in me is, I am ready to preach the gospel to you that are at Rome also. Notice, Paul wanted to preach the gospel to those who were already saved. He already mentions in verse 7 that he is writing to those that are called saints in Rome. And he wants to preach the gospel to them because he knows because they're saved, they'll receive the gospel. To preach the gospel to those who aren't saved would be a waste of time because they think that it's nothing but foolishness. My friends, the gospel, baptism, the Lord's Supper, and the rest of the ordinances given us in the New Testament are not the means of salvation. They were never designed nor intended for salvation. They are simply what God wants us to do in the New Testament church so that his children might worship him properly here in this world. If you teach salvation by ordinances, then you must deny salvation to infants and to the heathen. It is only by unconditional salvation that we could ever have a baby or someone who's never heard the gospel in heaven. Consider that in light of Romans 4.16 when you have the time to do so. But let's move forward to proof number six. 
Proof number six is that the Bible gives a number of, of examples of those who were saved without conditions. First, what about John the Baptist? We read in Luke chapter 1 that when Mary came into the presence of Elizabeth, John the Baptist leaped for joy in his mother's womb because God had promised Elizabeth that John the Baptist would be filled with the Holy Ghost from his mother's womb. Now you show me a person that's filled with the Holy Ghost and I'll show you a child of God according to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8 tells us, But ye are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if so be that the Spirit of God dwell in you. Now if any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. If the Spirit of God is dwelling in a man, that man is a child of God. The Spirit was dwelling in John the Baptist before he was ever born. John the Baptist was a saved child of God while he was still in his mother's womb. In fact, he was even bearing the fruit of the Spirit when he bore the fruit of joy and leaped in Elizabeth's womb when Mary saluted her. For we read in Galatians 5.22 that the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy. John the Baptist brought forth the fruit of the Spirit in his mother's womb. Now what condition did he perform in his mother's womb? Did he believe the gospel in order to be filled with the Holy Spirit? Was he baptized? Did he receive the Lord's Supper? Did he join the Church of Christ? Of course not is the answer to all four of those questions. John the Baptist was saved without condition in his mother's womb. His leaping for joy was a result of his salvation, not a condition for it, as we've established in proof number three. Cornelius was another one whom we've already referred to briefly. Cornelius was a man who had not yet heard the gospel, and yet he feared God, he prayed to God always, and he gave alms to the people that God received. Here was a man who was working righteousness. He was already a child of God. He was already a righteous man. Yet he had never performed any conditions in order to be made righteous. God had made him righteous unconditionally. What about the man named Lot? We read in Second Peter chapter 2 that Lot was a just man. And Lot had a righteous heart. Lot was both righteous and just. And yet when we go back and read Genesis 19, we see nothing good in the life of Lot. Lot was a man that the Bible leaves in a cave committing incest with his daughters. A man that the angels had to drag out of the city of Sodom. A man who chose by his own free will to live in the city of Sodom. Yet he was a righteous man. What conditions possibly could he have fulfilled for his salvation? Look with me now at Romans chapter 11. Romans chapter 11. I want to show you some individuals who certainly did not perform any conditions for eternal life, and yet they most surely shall be saved. Romans 11.28. Paul here is speaking about some of Israel that God has blinded from the gospel. You can read that in verse 25, that blindness in part has happened to Israel. And he says about these Israelites who are blind in verse 28, As concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sakes. But as touching the election, they are beloved for the Father's sakes. Paul here tells us that there are some Israelites who are enemies of the gospel. They hate the gospel. In fact, they were trying to stone Paul. But they were elect of God and would be in heaven when they died. Romans 11.28 The reason they were blinded is so that God could turn the gospel to the Gentiles. It's the way that God had ordained he would do things. Notice in verse 30, For as ye in times past, that is the Gentiles, have not believed God, yet have now obtained mercy through their unbelief. Look at verse 32. 
For God hath concluded them all in unbelief, that he might have mercy upon all. God here has taken some of his elect and put them in darkness. He's blinded them to the gospel, and yet they shall most surely be saved. Now, what kind of conditions could a man who's blinded to the gospel and an enemy of the gospel perform? Obviously, he performs none. God saves him unconditionally. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, where Paul describes the generation of Israelites that came out of the land of Egypt. Let me begin reading at verse 1. Moreover, brethren, I would not that ye should be ignorant, how that all our fathers were under the cloud, and all passed through the sea, that is the Red Sea, and were all baptized unto Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and did all eat the same spiritual meat, and did all drink the same spiritual drink. For they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. Notice that that generation of Israelites that came out of Israel ate and drank of Jesus Christ. They ate and drank of that spiritual rock, Christ Jesus. Now keep, keep your finger, please, at 1 Corinthians 10, and turn with me back to John chapter 6. John chapter 6, I want to read one verse. John six fifty four, Whoso eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood hath eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. Jesus said that if anyone eats his flesh and drinks his blood, they have eternal life, and he'll raise them up at the last day. Now back in 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 4, we read that that generation of Israelites ate and drank of Jesus Christ. Therefore, by comparing Scripture with Scripture, we can see that they had eternal life, and Jesus Christ will surely raise them up at the last day. But notice verse 5. But with many of them, God was not well pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Remember that nation of Israel, that generation of Israelites? They would not go into the land of Canaan and take it. So God had them wander in the wilderness for 40 years as he dropped their carcasses there in judgment for not taking the land of Canaan. They never received God's best for their life in this world, but they will receive everlasting life in heaven because they ate and drank of Christ unconditionally. They did not fulfill the conditions of pleasing God because God was not well pleased with them. They did not obey and believe the gospel as you can read in Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 2. The Bible gives us examples of men who were saved without conditions. So this is proof number six that salvation is by the unconditional grace of God. We've seen that John the Baptist was saved while in his mother's womb. Cornelius was saved before he ever heard the gospel. Part of elect Israel were blinded so that they were enemies of the gospel, yet they shall be saved. And here this generation of Israelites will be saved in heaven because they ate and drank of Christ unconditionally though they did not please God there in the wilderness. Let us now go to proof number seven. And this is definitely my most favorite proof when it comes to the proofs of unconditional salvation. And that is this. Any system of salvation that requires conditions on the part of the sinner detracts from the glory of God. It is only unconditional salvation that maximizes the glory of God. If you will be in heaven simply and purely and freely by what God has done for you, then who will get all the glory for your salvation? Obviously, God will get it all. But if you have done something to earn your salvation in heaven, if you exercised faith in Christ, if you repented, if you were baptized, if you joined the church, or whatever you did in order to earn eternal life, then you will get part of the glory 
when you're in heaven. So much of the world teaches today that God has loved all the world equally, Jesus Christ died for all men equally, and the Holy Spirit works diligently trying to convert and save them all equally. If that's true, what makes the difference between a man in hell and a man in heaven? According to the world's religions and most every system of salvation taught in America today, it would be what that man has done himself that makes the difference between hell and heaven. That would give him the glory for determining his final destiny when God has said he wants the glory himself. Look with me again at Romans 4 and verse 4. We read this earlier, but I think it's important enough to read again. Romans 4, 4. Now to him that worketh is the reward not reckoned of grace, but of debt. If you work for your salvation, that is, if you have conditions for eternal life, you're going to get eternal life by debt, not by grace. If it's by debt, then you earned it. The glory goes to you. Only if it's by free grace will all the glory go to God. Remember Ephesians 2.9 told us that salvation is not by works, lest any man should boast. God has arranged salvation in such a way that man will have no grounds to boast in heaven because it will be by free and simple grace. God will have given it unconditionally. He will not have granted salvation based upon the faith or works of man. Look with me at 1 Corinthians chapter 1, which is by far the most important passage under this proof. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Now we've already read some of the verses, including 18 and 24, that describe the fact that the preaching of the gospel is only profitable to those who are already saved. Now verses 24, 25, 26, 27, and 28 describe those that the gospel is profitable to, those that God has called into eternal life. And God goes to tell us in verse 27 that God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. God's chosen in verse 28 the base things of the world, and things which are despised hath God chosen, and things which are not to bring to naught things that are. God has arranged salvation, and God has chosen foolish and weak and base things of this world for this reason. Here is the reason God has ordained salvation the way he has. Verses 29 through 31. That no flesh should glory in his presence, but of him are ye in Christ Jesus, who of God is made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, that according as it is written, he that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord. Oh, those last three verses are precious, my friend. I trust that you can read them and understand them. God has arranged things so that no flesh should glory in his presence. When he gathers all of his children before his throne in heaven, he has arranged things so he has arranged salvation so that none of them will be able to glory in his presence. None of them will be able to thank any other man for their salvation. None of them will be able to say, well, I did this for my salvation. None of them will be able to say, I did that for my salvation. God alone gave salvation unconditionally that no flesh should glory in his presence. If the least condition is applied to salvation, then the difference between hell and heaven is what man does. And if the difference between hell and heaven is what man does, 
then man will be able to glory in God's presence because of what he did. But God has not arranged it that way. God has ruled out man's will. God has ruled out man's work. God himself has willed the salvation of his elect, and Jesus Christ secured that salvation with his obedient death on the cross. And it is by that means that we're saved. And God has done it that way so that no flesh can glory in his presence. According to Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 7, God has arranged salvation so that in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. God has arranged salvation so that he can show his great grace and kindness through Christ Jesus. God has not arranged his salvation so that you can earn it by debt and obligation. Remember, Ephesians chapter 2 tells us that we were saved by grace even when we were dead in sins, verse 5. And it's done that way, verse 7, so that God might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us. And oh, what kindness it was to save us when none deserved to be saved, when none of us have performed any conditions and we were unable to perform anything pleasing to God, God reached down while we were yet without strength, when he looked down and saw us without understanding, not seeking him, at enmity with him, with no fear of God in our hearts, he reached down and saved his elect and will grant them a place in heaven. And he has done it in such a way that no flesh can glory in his presence so that he that glorieth will glory only in the Lord. Let me show you just another verse or two on this point from Ephesians chapter 1. Look at Ephesians chapter 1, beginning in verse 5, speaking of God's work in salvation, that he has predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, wherein he hath made us accepted in the beloved. So many today teach that we must accept Jesus Christ. No, this verse tells us that God made us accepted in the beloved. The important thing is whether God has accepted us, not whether we have accepted Christ. God has made us accepted in the beloved. He's done it according to the good pleasure of his own will. The will of the sinner is not involved. If it was, we'd all go to hell because our will is at enmity with God. Why has he done it this way? To the praise of the glory of his grace. My friends, he's done it this way so that only his grace will be given glory in heaven. No glory will be given to any Catholic priest. No glory will be given to any fundamentalist minister or evangelist. All the glory will be given to the grace of God. Look at verse 11. In whom also that is in Jesus Christ also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestinated according to the purpose of him who worketh all things after the counsel of his own will. If you ever receive the promise of your eternal inheritance, you'll receive it because God predestinated you to that inheritance. That is, he determined your final destiny beforehand according to the purpose of him who worketh all things after the counsel of his own will. It's God's own will that is the basis for your predestination to your eternal inheritance. And why did he do it that way? Verse 12, that we should be to the praise of his glory. That's why God's done it that way, so that no flesh should glory in his presence, but he that glorieth should glory only in the Lord. There we have the seven proofs of unconditional salvation. 
All the religions in the world, all the doctrines of salvation can fall into two categories. Either God gives salvation sovereignly without conditions, that is, he requires nothing on the part of the sinner, or God requires conditions of the sinner which make salvation by works. 99.9% .9 of all religions today teach that the sinner must perform certain works, certain acts, certain conditions in order to be saved. But my friends, the word of God cuts through all that system of salvation by works and teaches that salvation is by the free and sovereign grace of God. It is unconditional. It is without human cooperation. We prove that by proof number one, that man is unable to do anything to please God for salvation. By proof number two, that God plainly denies man's will and works in the scheme of salvation. By proof number three, that if any man shows faith or works, it's the result of salvation and not conditions for it. Proof number four, that Jesus Christ is saved entirely by himself. It is by the obedience of one that we are made righteous. Proof number five was that the ordinances of the gospel were not designed or intended to bring life, but simply to give local churches the means to worship God properly. Proof number six gives us examples like John the Baptist, like Cornelius, who were saved without conditions, and tells us about whole generations who were saved and never performed conditions, but were in fact enemies of the gospel. And proof number seven is that this is the only system of salvation that gives God all the glory because man is totally subject to the free grace and the will of God because his works and his conditions are not involved. God has arranged salvation so that no flesh should glory in his presence. My friends, if you saw in this 90-minute Bible study that all the power and the wisdom of salvation is in Jesus Christ, if you have loved and enjoyed what you have heard and rejoice in your heart that God is your Father and that Jesus Christ is saved by himself, then I can tell you on the authority of the Word of God that you are one of his children. If you love what you have heard, if you see Jesus Christ in what you have heard, if you see the wisdom and the power of God that was in Christ in arranging such a wonderful scheme of salvation, then I can tell you, you are one of God's children, because only one of God's children would believe, accept, and love such a message. If you're thankful for God's gracious salvation, then may I t tell you, you ought to be baptized according to 1 Peter 3.21. If you have a conscience that feels good with this message, then you have a conscience that should answer God. 1 Peter 3.21 tells us that baptism is the answer of a good conscience. If you're thankful for God's gracious salvation, then you ought to be baptized as soon as possible. If you've already been baptized, or you're wondering who ought to baptize you, then you need to look for a church, and you need to look for a minister, a minister and servant of Jesus Christ who teaches the gospel of God in truth. In John chapter 4 and verse 24, we read that God is a spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. In order for your worship to be pleasing to God, it must be done in truth. You must be baptized in truth. You must be the member of a church that preaches the same gospel I have preached to you if you're to please God and be a worshiper like he seeks. In Galatians chapter 1, verses 8 and 9, Paul has this to say about the gospel. Paul said, But though we, or an angel from heaven, preach any other gospel unto you than that which we have preached unto you, let him be accursed. As we said before, so say I now again, if any man preach any other gospel unto you than that ye have received, 
let him be accursed. Paul tells us here that we ought not to receive any gospel, though he were to preach it to us, or an angel from heaven were to preach it to us, if it differs from what he's already established in the word of God. I have shown you by seven infallible proofs that eternal life, that eternal glory in heaven is unconditional by the free grace of God. Do not accept any gospel that sets forth conditions, whether those conditions be acts of the will or acts of the body, whether they be faith or works of righteousness. Do not accept any gospel that teaches conditions for salvation. Look for a minister and a church that teaches salvation by the unconditional mercy and grace of God. May Jesus Christ be praised is my prayer.